passive income without the property headache? It's possible. There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com bp. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 592. If you're going to continue to keep high leverage because the, you want to lock in rates, that's totally fine. Just offset with more cash, which means you might have to pass on the next deal. You know, don't do it. Hold it. Reserve it. Um, and, and it's hard for real estate people to do this. I swear. I know them really well. They, they just, it, oh, no, no. I, I mean, it's in the bank. It's not earning anything. I just can't do it. But sometimes you have to, you have to make that, that choice. What's going on, everyone? It's David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast, the best dang real estate podcast in the world. If you are looking to find financial freedom through real estate, you, my friend, are in the right place. Bigger Pockets is a community of over 2 million members that are all on the same journey as you, trying to find financial freedom and a better life through the power of real estate. And we want to help you to do that. We do it by bringing in guests that have taken the same journey that you're on right now, people that have made mistakes that you can learn from, and guests like today, who is in asset protection that will help you learn how to protect what you've already got and reduce the fear that is inherent with growing a big portfolio or taking action in general. Today's guest is Doug Lodmel, and I had a fantastic time interviewing him with my good friend, Dave Meyer. Dave, who's also the co-host of today's show, welcome. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me back. It is always fun to be here. 
Yeah, we need to come up with some clever like Dave and Dave type thing. I mean, I'm sure we could maybe do better than Dave and Dave, but our names are both David. So that at some point needs to get incorporated into this. Uh, let me ask you, what was your favorite part of our interview with Doug today? I think my favorite part was talking about understanding and being comfortable with risk and the way that you get comfortable with risk, because there is risk in real estate investing, just like there's risk in any type of investing and there's risk in not investing at all. But we had a really good conversation about how to plan for risk and how to accept it and be comfortable with it and how that leads to better decision-making. And I think that's just really true. Just being fearful and afraid of the worst-case scenario is going to put you in a position where you can't make good decisions. And so we had a really good conversation about how to protect yourself in a way that's going to allow you to act aggressively and to pursue your financial goals um, in a way that is responsible and that you're personally comfortable with. Yeah. Doug made a really good point that no one makes really good decisions when they're afraid. And I, I've been thinking about that and it's brought me to the, the purpose of fear. So if you're walking in the woods and you see a big, scary bear that's charging you, fear is very helpful because it lets you know, I need to do something. I need to take an action. Okay. And typically it works best when you have a limited number of options and they're pretty simple, like run this way or run that way or climb a tree. That's all I got to figure out. Once you're running, it's very difficult to think about anything else. It's not easy to think about where you're running to, where you are on a map, like how long that bear might be able to go before they get tired. Did I remember to turn off the coffee maker this morning? Your brain isn't thinking about all of those things. And that's what Doug was getting at is when you're in the state of fear, you don't think very well. You don't make good decisions because all of your efforts are focused on one thing, which is like take this action really, really fast. And so if you have a plan in place already, if I come across a bear, I'm running that way to that tree and I'm never too far away from that tree. Well, when you feel the fear, it never overwhelms you because you just, it, you just work out the plan you had. And that's what today's show is about is how you put a plan in place. So when fear does come, it doesn't paralyze you and keep you from taking action. It just spurs you to take the action that you've already planned ahead to take. So please listen all the way through this when we have a really good conversation about fear. And then at the very end of the show, Dave and I have a really good conversation just about in general, how there is risk in everything. There's just as much risk in not doing something as there is in doing something. And we give some advice on how you can mitigate that. Now, in lieu of today's quick tip, we are going to bring Dave in to do a tease on his brand new podcast that will be joining the Bigger Pockets Podcast Network on the market. Dave, tell me about this show. So, yeah, I mean, we've sort of been doing the concept here on Bigger News a lot, but basically we recognize that the housing market and being an investor is the conditions are changing really rapidly. We're in a very unusual economic time. And to be a great, confident investor, and sort of like what we're talking about today, to proceed without fear, to proceed with confidence, you really have to understand everything that's going on. You need to understand the impact of government or Fed policy. Uh, you need to understand what's happening with inventory. And we're also going to be looking at opportunities like investing in the metaverse or 3D printed houses. We're going to just be looking at real estate from more of a current events, data and news standpoint. And it's going to be super fun. So I am the host, but we also are going to have more of a panel show. So we have four 
regularly occurring panelists. We have Kathy Fecky, who is actually the first guest here on Bigger News that we ever did. Um, Kathy Fecky Henry, who's also regularly on the show, Henry Washington, as well as Jamil Damji and James Daynard, who are all going to be coming in and bringing their expertise. And we'll also do shows similar to Bigger News, where we bring in an expert like Douglas or some of the other great guests that we've had here on Bigger News uh, and talk about everything going on in the housing market, the broader world of investing, and help you make sense of what's going on. And uh, I'm super excited. It's coming out on April 11th. So I hope that if you like bigger news, if you want to stay informed um, and be up to date on everything impacting your investing strategy, you check out the new show on the market. Awesome. Make sure you check that out because Dave does a great job at everything he does. And I'm sure this podcast will be fantastic. And I'm mostly saying that because I hope you bring me on your show because it sounds really cool and I'd love to be able to help with it. Of course. Yeah, we would love to have you. And actually, to give like a little teaser for the show, I was hoping we could do a we basically we start we're going to start each show on the market like going through the the week's top stories um and we do that in different games actually a couple weeks ago into bigger news we did news or noise um and i was hoping you would do me the honor of doing another game it's not really a game but we call it quick take so i'm going to read you three different headlines and i would love to just get your quick reaction to these headlines and help our listeners make sense of what this news means okay is this quick like the first word that comes to mind or am i getting a little (laughs) bit of insight no like give me give me 30 seconds to a minute on each of them yeah it's not it's not like word association (laughs) Although that would be pretty fun. That would be funny. Who knows right, what we'll do that. Out. We'll do that next month. Um, okay. So the first headline is active listings, which is the number of homes listed for sale at any point during a given month, fell 24% year over year. And they were already low last year, which is crazy, dropping to an all-time low of 456,000. And listings were down 50% from the same period in 2020. So just to summarize that, listings at an all-time low Things just keep getting crazier. What are your thoughts on this? Well, if houses are selling faster, then the number of active listings will be going down, even if the number of homes that are selling remains the same. So that's how I would look at this is like the same number of houses could be coming on the market, but they sell quicker. So there's not as many listings on the market at one time because they don't last as long. Super great point. I think that's something that people really misunderstand, that they see active listings low and means that no one's selling their house. But demand is a super important component of listings because if people, you could put millions of houses on the market, but if there are two, you know, if you put a million houses on the market and there's three million super motivated buyers, there's not going to be a lot on the market any given week. Okay. Absolutely true. So for our second headline, mortgage rates are just absolutely skyrocketing right now. We started the year where the 30-year fixed rate was about 3.1%. As of this recording, which is late March, uh, we are seeing interest rates at about four and a half. What do you think this means for real estate investors in the larger housing market? So I think a lot of people will see this and think, oh, there's going to be a crash. I should wait. I doubt that's going to happen. Guys like me, whether it's 3%, 4.5%, we're going to buy it. Um, I also don't think it's likely to lead to a drop in prices, and here's why. 
The average seller who put their house on the market eight days ago and just heard interest rates went up is not going to say, let me drop the price by a hundred grand. It just doesn't work that way. The only thing that makes sellers decide to change, to lower their prices, either they have an, a fantastic negotiator of a real estate agent that convinces them, rarely ever the case, it's more time on the market. When your house sits there for 60 days, 90 days, 120 days, and you thought it was selling 30 days, you finally say, okay, I'll drop the price. So what has to happen is these increase in interest rates that could theoretically slow down a market have to have an impact for 90 to 120 days before sellers even decide to drop their price. And then slowly more sellers start to decide to do the same thing. And usually we don't see this sustained for that long. So typically I think people hear news like this and they expect an immediate impact on the real estate market, but that's not how real estate markets work. It's based off of emotions that people have. That's how they make decisions. Most sellers don't decide to drop their price for a significant period of time. So if we see rates keep climbing for another three to six months or so, at that point, you might see a slowdown. You're not going to see a crash. People are not going to lower the price of their house in half because of this. You're just going to see that maybe they don't get as many over asking price offers or they don't sell as quickly. Maybe that number you were describing of active listings could start to creep back up. But don't expect a deal of the century. What I would expect is that you get a little window where there's less competition than normal, which could be a really good time for people to move that have been getting outbid. That's a great point. So for everyone listening, if you want to keep tabs on what's happening, if prices are going to go down, a great lead indicator to look at, as David pointed out, is time on market. It's why real estate professionals like David and real estate investors look at these types of things because there is that lag. But if you start to see time on market creeping up and listen, if it creeps up a little bit, I wouldn't be too concerned because we are at literally all time lows. So if it even gets yeah. up, goes up a little bit, it's not crazy. But if we start seeing it go back to what is a more healthy housing market, that's when you could start to see housing prices at least flat now and, and not see like the 15% year over year appreciation. Okay. Absolutely. Our last headline is I just read about this this morning the other day. Lenders One Cooperative announced that they will be leasing retail space in Walmart to sell mortgages and products and services Walmart. David, you're just hysterically laughing right now. Are you going to get a mortgage at Walmart? Oh, this is too good. I got to know what the <laughs> thought Walmart is sort of like <clears throat> the base of all memes of undesirable customers. <laughs> I've never understood that. Let me just say this. The Walmart where uh, I grew up in a city called Manteca, it's not that bad. I never really got the whole like Walmart stigma until I went to Walmarts in other states. And then I sort of were like, oh, I get it. This is there's there's some mutants running around in this place. Um, but it's it's not what you would think of for people that are going to be qualified to get a mortgage. So does this company know something we don't know? Like secretly, they've done a study and found that millionaires are all shopping at Walmart. That wouldn't be too surprising, right? Because the millionaire next door sort of does describe them being that way. Or is this just how do we get in front of a lot of eyeballs and they know there's a lot of foot traffic at a Walmart, so they're going to stick uh, a branch right there. I would love to see how this plays out. And I probably wouldn't be surprised if they end up going out of business and being replaced by one of those things that you dump your coins into and it turns it into uh, <laughs> yeah, a coin star machine. Cash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder about this kind of model. I've never really heard of mortgage companies relying on foot traffic before. So it's kind of interesting. I'm, I'm wondering if 
you know, with the refinance activity declining, if a lot of these mortgage companies are just looking for new ways to market and to keep volume up because with interest rates going up, you know, we saw this bonanza of refinancing over the last two years and that obviously is going to slow down now. Um, So I just thought this was really funny. I thought you would appreciate it. Well, they do have banks in grocery stores, but that, that kind of makes sense because you might need to go to your bank to just like make a withdrawal or a deposit. But if it's a pure mortgage company, I mean, that might, if I go deeper, that might be a sign that the competition for mortgages is just getting fierce to where they're like, let's try anything to try to get customers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a little strange. It's not like you bring all your tax documents to Walmart so you could go get approved while you're there. Like, yeah, you're like, just, oh, I'll just <laughs> casually go get a, a mortgage right now. What, yeah. what is he, I'm, what, honey, I'm going to Walmart. Do you need anything? Uh, give me some socks and see if you could get a 15 year quote on our house. We might want to refi. Yeah. yeah. It's like your shopping list is like toilet paper, hot dogs, mortgage. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Well, if you guys like this type of news analysis, we're going to be doing fun short segments where you get quick takes on the the week's biggest stories just like this. But we're also going to be doing deep dives into important trends. We're going to be doing deep analysis into the things that impact your investing. And so if you're interested, definitely come check out On The Market. It is a really cool show. We have an incredible panel and we really make it fun. You know, we're going to be talking about um, important topics. But we keep it lighthearted and make the information digestible, and you're going to have a good time listening to it. All right, let's bring in our guest for today, Doug. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Podcast. How are you? Yeah, great. Happy to be here. Yeah, we are really glad you're here. And I know my co-host here, Dave Meyer, is totally geeking out because he loves talking about really exciting and sexy stuff like asset protection. Right. Oh my so, God. Don't even get me started. <laughs> yeah, Dave. So tell me, like, when it comes to protecting assets and learning how the legal process works, what exactly is it that gets your gears grinding just like it does? Me? Yes. Well, I know you like this stuff. I do. I just think that it's interesting and helpful for people to think about how they, you know, we talk a lot about all the benefits of real estate investing, and there are many. There, It is, to my knowledge, the best thing that you could possibly invest in. But thinking of it as fail safe and that there aren't risks is irresponsible. And I think looking into the common sense ways that you can protect yourself is a good strategy for long-term investing. Like when we're in a good market cycle and things are going up, it's, it's easy. But I think if you're in this for the long run, as I am, and I think we advise most people to be, you're going to go through market cycles. You're going to go through changing conditions. And it's people like Douglas who could help us understand how to best protect yourself for the long run. Awesome. So Douglas, do you mind sharing a little bit? How did you get into this specific niche of real estate investing and why do you feel it's really important? Uh, well, you know, it's it's really an interesting story. So my father it was an attorney and did um, estate planning and, you know, business planning. But his real, uh, his real success came when he started syndicating real estate deals. Now, this was back in the 80s in Arizona. So um, you want to talk about a great place to be syndicating raw land deals in, you know, Chandler and all these places that today are huge blown up cities. 
And what happened is, is that um, we had the SNL crisis. So we had this, this external thing occur and a bunch of his investors, a lot of them doctors and, and professionals were limited partners in these deals. They had their own financial problems. Their lives blew up. And when, when those creditors, mostly banks, came to my dad as the general partner of these syndications and said, hey, you know, your investor here owes us a million dollars and he's got this limited partnership equity interest worth a million dollars. We'd like to have it. My dad was able to say, sorry, you don't get that. You don't control it. That limited partner is, 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 you know, doesn't have a control, um, say whatsoever, and I'm not distributing anything. Um, that's where this first concept of asset protection really dawned on him as a specific thing because he helped dozens of his clients settle with banks for pennies on the dollars when they had the money to pay, but simply because the money wasn't available to the bank, they couldn't get it. And so, you know, this is 1986 or so. Um, and, and a little light bulb went off in his head and he said, wow, that worked incredibly well. What if we did that on purpose? What if we actually started creating legal structures specifically to protect assets, which wasn't the point of those syndications. Those were investments, but it worked. And that's because of the way the, the charging order protection works and, uh, the limited nature of an investor in a limited partnership or in an LLC for that matter. So that was kind of the, the start of it. Um, I went to law school, I graduated in 1997, um, and I really didn't plan on joining him, but as you know, serendipity works out, I did. And, um, I've been doing asset protection ever since. So if you had to sum up why that ended up working, why the investors, in your father's fund were not able to, they didn't lose their share. What would be the principle in place that prevented that from happening? Well, the principle is, is that um, a creditor of a partner in a partnership or a member in an LLC who's a non-controlling member um, doesn't have any ability to take the place of that person. And the best they can get is what's called a charging order. So what the court says is, hey, I, we respect this judgment against this investor, and they can, they can basically record a lien on that investor's interest in the partnership, but they can't force a foreclosure on the partnership interest. They can't force a distribution. The general partner continues to control that. And the general partner is friends with who? The investor, not the investor's creditor. So what are the chances the general partner is going to make a distribution to an investor when that, they, they know that there's a creditor standing there? Slim to none. Well, the creditors figure this out and go, okay, well, we're not going to ever get anything out of here. We're going to settle. And so it just creates settlement. You can't stop somebody from getting a judgment against you. There's no way, not anybody. I mean, not Elon Musk, not Bill Gates, not you, not me. People can get judgments because our legal system is actually pretty open and easy to use to get judgments. But what we can do through asset protection is, is block their ability to get to our assets. Which is, which is highly effective because your judgment isn't worth a lot if you can't actually collect on it. I'll tell you another thing that works really good for defense. Uh, a tenant used it against me one time when I got a judgment against them as being broke. Well, exactly. 
<laughs> yeah. No blood from a stone, right? I I'm mean, not sure you would recommend that as a good defensive option. No, and that's why we have Doug here, because this is for people who are trying to not be broke to protect what they have so you don't have to right. use the, the broke defense. Right. That guy still owes me like $8,000 from 12 years ago. You'll never get it. <laughs> and it won't be worth for you to even try, even if you found out he had a couple of bucks. Well, that's exactly right. And Dave, I know you have a point. I'm going to say this real quick. The reason is very similar to what you just described as you can't stop people from coming after you. But if you put enough hurdles in place, they will give up on their own. And that's what he did by being broke is the work that it would take me to get to there to try to garnish his wages and collect $200 a month for God knows how long is not worth the effort that I would have to put into it. So that principle is oddly enough (laughs) works in both scenarios. And that's really in many cases in life, I find all I'm ever trying to do when I'm negotiating with somebody I'm usually not trying to just go in and hammer them to death. I'm usually just trying to make them more uncomfortable than me for longer and see which one of us will quit. So I'm a big proponent of what you're saying, because this is something we use in everyday life all the time. Every day, all the time. So Douglas, for real estate investors, both new and experienced who Mm -hmm. aren't familiar with asset protection, can you give us a high level overview of some of the more common tools and strategies that you use to protect your clients? Sure, sure. And I know you guys had Brian Bradley on a few times and and he talked about some of these things as well. And he's an affiliate of mine. Um, and, and so I'll just kind of recap what it is that are the kind of the three main tools. Um, the first is what we just talked about, uh, a limited liability company or a limited partnership. It's kind of that initial uh, base layer tool where you're going to put a piece of real estate in a limited liability company. Um, you might have 10 limited liability companies because you have a lot of real estate and you want to separate out the, the buckets. From there, we're almost always going to use some type of holding company and we're going to typically use it in a specific state. Unlike at the LLC, which is really best used in the state where the real estate is, because that's the law that's going to get applied anyway. When you get to the holding company level, you get a little more freedom of choice. You can choose one of the states that has better laws, stronger, stronger charging order protection. You know, the, the popular common ones are Nevada and Wyoming, Delaware. Um, I actually love Arizona. It's just as good as those other states, but it has some other unique features. Um, and as long as you choose a state that has very strong and exclusive charging order protection, then you end up doubling up on that protection. So you have an LLC, which is charging order, and then you have a holding company, which is charging order. On top of that, we use a final tool called an asset protection trust. And the asset protection trust is really the big bazooka of asset protection. It's the thing that if it's all falling apart, it's all going off the rails, we can actually do something about it. Um, there's three ways to do an asset protection trust. One is fully foreign in an offshore jurisdiction like the Cook Islands or Nevis or Belize. The other end of the spectrum is fully domestic in a jurisdiction like Nevada, Delaware, Alaska, Wyoming. Um, And then the third way is in a hybrid form, which I call a bridge trust. Uh, I, I mean, just to keep it as simple as possible, the bridge trust is basically a foreign trust treated as a domestic trust for tax purposes. So you get all the protection of the foreign trust if you ever need it, but you get the simplicity of a domestic trust even simpler to manage, um, disregarded for tax purposes. So, you know, those are kind of the three basic tools. You know, what, what a client needs will just depend on where they're at in the cycle. They might just need an LLC. 
or they might need one or two LLCs and a holding company, um, or they might need all three. It really just depends on, on their level of, of asset and risk. You know, Douglas, one of the most commonly debated topics on Bigger Pockets is do you need an LLC? I've I've worked here for six years and I feel like once or twice a year it just blows up on the forums. There's huge debates about this. Yeah. I'm an LLC guy, so yeah. I think I'm on your page. But do you advise this for everyone? Are are there situations where if you're just getting started or you're new, you don't need to think about this? Or do you think regardless of your experience level or what your investments are, you should be thinking about these levels of asset protection? You know, Dave, it's a really good question. It's not as simple as, yeah, you always have to have an LLC. There are certainly cases where, um, you know, it's probably fine to not. Um, however, if I'm going to make a general statement, I will say that if um, you, you would be 90% plus of the time, better off with an LLC. So I'll give you an example. I had a guy come to me from California. He started investing very young. He never used LLCs. I mean, he had tens of millions of dollars of California property, um, not a single one in an LLC, and he'd been doing it for 30 years. And when he came to us, he had a problem. And and we looked at this and I just was like, wow. I mean, I have never seen someone so exposed. The challenge for him was, is that backing up and putting everything in an LLC was a massive deal. I mean, we were talking about um, incredible costs to create and to maintain and transfer. Um, and ultimately, that was too much. And he ended up choosing not to put everything in LLCs because he had just gotten so far behind. Um, the downside of that, of course, is that he didn't have the leverage he would have had in the, in the current issue, and he had to settle for probably much more than he would have had he done it right. So, you know, that's the reason why if you're going to become a real estate investor, you're probably just better off starting on the right track. LLCs are not expensive to form. If you can't afford an attorney to do it, it's not the worst thing in the world to do it on online yourself with one of these entities that can set them up for 99 bucks. It's better than nothing. Um, and it, you know, they're, they're, they don't create a lot of complication. If they're single member, they're disregarded. So they don't need their own tax returns. So do you absolutely need it every time? You know, no, if you never get sued, you never need it. Is it best practice? It's absolutely best practice. The, the reason not everybody wants to is often not associated with the cost. It's often associated with it's difficult to get financing when it's an LLC. Correct. So yeah. do you have like a line in the sand where you would say, hey, get this many properties in your name so you can get financing. And when you get to a certain point, it's best to move into an LLC. Well, actually, I have a, a different way to handle that. Um, it is correct that a lot of times it's much easier to get financing in your own name. It is also true that once the bank records their mortgage and once they, they are done with that file, they will not be reopening it. They, they have no incentive to reopen it. They don't want to check and see anything about it. Um, all, all it can do is create problems for their own compliance and their own, their own ratios. So um, in 25 years of advising clients, um, I have advised them always to go ahead. If you need to get financing in your own name, get it in your own name and then go ahead and transfer the property the, into the LLC. Don't tell the bank. 
Now, this may sound a little counterintuitive, you know, don't tell the bank, doesn't that trigger the due on sale clause? Yes, it technically does trigger the due on sale clause. In most instances, we can assume it's going to. However, does it actually trigger the due on sale clause? And the answer is in 25 years, and I'm talking thousands of real estate transfers, in two instances only has the bank ever even noticed. And in both those instances, they gave permission after the fact. It just kind of forced them to go, okay, we're fine with it. So the, the better approach is just go ahead and do your financing personally, make the transfer into the LLC, don't tell the bank, keep current, um, and, and, and just realize you're running a very, very, very small risk that the bank at some point could come back to you and say, hey, you transferred this without our permission and uh, it's due, you know, the mortgage is due. I would agree with you, and I've said the same thing. From a practical standpoint, it's always that, yes, it could happen, but is it going to happen? Is like Who at the bank are they going to have that's going through every single file and checking to see? Uh, and then they ha- they have a person who's paying like they want, and now they're going to go mess with that. It doesn't happen. I will they, don't add- they don't want the non-performing loan. They don't want to convert a performing loan into non-performing by finding the technical flaw. They are not going to look. I promise. They don't want to look. The only thing that I've ever thought of that made me think what would make them look, what would motivate them is if interest rates skyrocketed and they're looking at your loan where you have money borrowed at 3% and they could get it back from you and lend it at 15 or 20%, something like that. If you see a scenario, I would start to worry a little bit more about this, but we are light years away from that happening right now. It's just something that in today's environment, yeah, there's no reason a bank's ever going to go do that. There could be a situation where they might go, oh, we let this person borrow 600 grand. We could get that back and lend it at seven times the rate that may uh, put them in that position. But I agree with you. It's usually something people spend way too much time worrying about. Now, here's something I I do want to ask. What in your experience, Doug, are the things that you have seen go wrong for investors that have got them into legal trouble where they were then like, ah, do I have an LLC? Do I have to do it? Like, what are the common complaints that get brought against them that people should look out for? Well, I mean, it's funny. Um, it's it's typically the stuff that they know that they're taking on the risk of. Um, <laughs> other real estate deals and other banks are often the the culprit. So um, they get involved and they start doing a lot of things and and they get really excited about what they're doing. I've got one client. Um, he got really excited about an area that he thought he had identified early and he picked up a lot of real estate in that area. Um, and he, and he, and he kind of went on a buying spree and ultimately started finding money at higher costs because he'd run out of the normal bank financing and he just leveraged himself. Um, he was a little early in his assessment of how quickly that neighborhood was going to pop. And it cost him because all of a sudden the creditor over here is looking at everything else. Um, so banks are probably the biggest issue for real estate investors, which kind of gets into another conversation we should probably have about leverage. But over leverage on some deals can blow up your whole portfolio. Um, so that's very important. The other thing that is probably the the number one or, or two reason um, is partnerships. People get into partnerships and usually they're, they're doing it because it's two people that are new 
and they kind of want each other's support and help. And so let's just do this together. And they get into partnerships. They do not take it seriously. They do not draft a good partnership agreement. They do not have clear rules around what's going to happen when one partner decides they're no longer into it and is going to go to Tahiti on vacation and just leave you with the work. And these things blow up. Um, it happens when, when, the, when we have rough times, they blow up. And when times are good and the money is now, there's a bunch of equity and, 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 and they don't have the same perception about the amount of risk they took or the amount of work they put into it. Um, so it's kind of what you hear about with people who, you know, get mugged. It's always like two blocks from their home. It's that kind of a car accidents, three blocks from your home. Um, lawsuits are almost always two blocks from your home. It's somebody, you know, it's a bank you did business with. It's a partnership you got involved with. It's a, it's a, uh, you know, a person, you know, that you did a favor for, and all of a sudden you're, you're the bad guy because you don't want to do the second favor. And all of a sudden it just turns into a mess. Um, it sometimes is outside stuff like car accidents. Um, I mentioned car accidents cause they're surprisingly, a, a, a big thing. I mean, I would say seven or eight times a year, I get someone calling me with a car accident that is multi-million dollar claims and they don't have enough insurance. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're just out of their league and they just didn't think about it. But nowadays to run into the wrong person and get in a car accident and have a five or $10 million liability is not out of the question. And your little 300, 500 insurance policy is not going to cover it. Um, so it, it's kind of everything, Dave, it's, it's across the board and I don't want to misstate this or mislead. It's still a very small percentage of the time. Many people can go their whole lives, never having a legal problem, a lawsuit, a challenge. Um, one of my first jobs out of college was with Nomura securities on wall street in New York city. And I was responsible for putting together this little report of our wins and losses. And every day, 97.4, 98.2 wins. I'm just like, we win 98% of the time. So I went to my boss in the risk management department, which is where I was, and said, I don't understand this. We win 98% of the time. Every day I've been seeing this report for six months. We're always winning. I mean, how, how can we lose? And he goes, oh, well, you don't understand. The 2% of the time that we lose, we lose it all. It, it, the losses are outsized. And that's a lawsuit. It might only happen 2% of the time to 2% of my clients. But when it happens, it's catastrophic. And so you have to decide, you know, do you want to protect against a catastrophic loss or do you want to always take that risk? My experience has been that people want to accept the risk until they wake up one day and they realize, oh, I have something to lose and I'm not a spring chicken anymore. I don't have as much time to keep doing this. There's a tipping point that always happens. And it just all of a sudden they go from not really caring about asset protection to I need to do asset protection. Yeah, that's that tipping point happens in many different ways in our world. It goes from I want to grow, I want to expand, I want to own every single property in the world to I don't want to lose what I have. That's I'm it. worried about a correction. It's I, I call yep. it going from offense to defense, right? It's That's offense, it. offense, offense, offense. You're Napoleon trying to take over the world, and then you get it all, and you're like, how do I keep this? Right. And then and it's and it's actually kind of sad because 
when you're in a defensive mindset, you're looking at the worst case scenario at everything that could happen in life. You're looking at how could this person take advantage of me? How could I lose something? What could we go to war about? It's a lot less fun. So I agree with you. If you set things up correctly, you don't put as much pressure on yourself to have to anticipate things going wrong because you've got natural things in order. And then you also mentioned something else that frankly, I'd never really thought about. I always looked at it like a problem could happen in my rental property. And if I was sued, they could take things outside of the rental property. But you're actually, if I'm hearing you right, saying you could get in a car accident completely unrelated to your rental property. And if they're not an LLC, they could go take your rental properties as part of that judgment. Is that what you're getting at? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's the point of an LLC. There's two, there's two directions it protects from, the inside out and the outside in. So we call it inside liability and outside liability. Inside liability is the fire on the property or the, you know, the, the something directly related to the property. Um, and the LLC kind of attempts to shield that, put it in a Ziploc bag and say, okay, well, let's just contain this risk. The outside liability is the car accident, the partnership dispute, the, you know, whatever judgment that comes. And now they're just looking at your properties as an asset. And if they're not in the LLC, they're available. Yeah, that should be catching some people's attention because there's a lot of our listeners that are one drunken night away from a bad bar fight where they break (laughs) someone's nose. And you are a right. big judgment comes, right? And normally they do everything smart in their business, but they make that one bad decision, you know, or one text message when driving away from yep. something terrible happening. And when you could go from thinking I'm totally safe to I'm not safe very quickly. Right. Not that a lot of our listeners are getting in drunken bar fights. I'm not trying to say that, but just in, in general, people are one, mis- one bad decision away from a lawsuit that could change their whole life. That's right. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As home prices and interest rates continue to rise and inventory levels dip, it's getting harder to find quality flips and wholesale deals. When there's not enough on-market inventory to go around, it's time to start looking off-market. Lucky for you, there are millions of homeowners nationwide who own a property they need to get off their hands. I got two words for you, my friend. PropStream it. PropStream is the leading real estate data provider and recognized as a Tech 100 honoree by Housing Wire for the fourth consecutive year. With PropStream, you can search over 155 million properties nationwide using 120 plus search filters like pre-foreclosure, bankruptcy, pre-probate, failed listings, and more to help you find motivated sellers in seconds. PropStream offers both public record data and an MLS sales estimate that's over 99% accurate to help you get the most accurate comps even in non-disclosure states. 
PropStream also provides lead automation, skip tracing, and a marketing suite with emails, postcards, and custom landing pages to close more deals efficiently. Get started today with their seven-day free trial and get 50 leads for free. Head on over to www.propstream.com BP. That's www.propstream.com BP. Take a second and imagine this. Immediate cash flow, above average rent, built-in equity, and a foolproof exit plan. No, it's not 2012 again. This is just what it's like to invest with Integra Development Group. They've simplified the real estate investing process so everyone can invest. With their new construction single-family rent-to-own homes, you'll get aggressively priced brand new properties that have tenants in place now in one of the fastest-growing states in America, Florida. Here's how IDG's rent-to-own strategy works. You get exclusive access to inventory with aggressive pricing thanks to IDG's builder-partner relationships. Then, invest and collect immediate cash flow with tenants already in place at or very close to closing. With the demand for new builds, your tenants pay above market rent, so you rake in more cash flow. And you'll get built-in equity and appreciation with an already agreed-to purchase price at year three, helping the tenants become homeowners while you build wealth. That's investing simplified. So secure your next investment property today with Integra Development Group at IntegraDG.com. That's IntegraDG.com to start investing today. Are you about to sell a property? Wait like 60 seconds because this could save you thousands. Our friends at 1031 Pros have saved their clients more than half a billion dollars with a B in taxes with 1031 tax-deferred exchanges. With the 1031 exchange, You can say goodbye to the huge capital gains taxes when selling and roll your property's profit into another investment that could make you even more. Whether you're an individual investor, part of a larger group, or a title or real estate agent, 1031 Pros is ready to help. Trust me, I've done 1031 exchanges on multiple properties before, and it has saved me tens of thousands in taxes, if not more. With over 30 years of experience, 1031 Pros has handled over 20,000 audit-free exchanges, and they specialize in all types of exchanges. Delayed, simultaneous, reverse, and improvement exchanges in all 50 states. And right now, Bigger Pockets listeners can get $250 off any exchange by visiting my1031pros.com slash BP. That's my1031pros.com slash BP to get $250 off today. Oh, and make sure to mention Bigger Pockets when you call. They take care of our people over there. So Douglas, I'd love to switch gears a little bit because this is our bigger news episode. I'd love to just pick your brain a little bit and learn how you're seeing today's market and how you're assessing risk for your clients right now. Yeah, it's it's a really good question. I mean, you know, and um, I, I, I'm fortunate now. I've been practicing law for 25 years. I went through 2008. You know, I, I got out uh, and, and started in 1997. So um, I have enough experience to have been through these cycles and seen it more than once with the dot com and the 2008 crash. Um, and and um, I also have just purely fortunate. I'm very fortunate to have thousands and thousands of points of reference of incredibly successful, incredibly intelligent, um, incredibly great people that become my clients. 
And they're the ones that teach me more than everyone, everything else. Um, they come and they have all these unique situations. Um, they also have all these unique perspectives. And so um, I kind of spent the last 25 years synthesizing all of this information and coming up with what I feel is a fairly, you know, comprehensive, balanced understanding of the world of, you know, risk and investment and um human psychology, which is an incredibly big part of it. I mean, the human psychology is probably the biggest part of it. But um, what I would say about real estate in particular is that it's an incredibly attractive investment because it has something that other investments don't have, which is depreciation. With real estate, you have this built-in advantage. So it's very attractive because you effectively... I mean, my real big real estate investors, they virtually do not pay taxes. I mean, it, it, they just keep investing. They keep accelerating depreciation through cost segregation analysis and kicking the can down the road. And if you kick the can down the road enough, you eventually really never have to pay the piper. Um, and that's a, what a lot of them do. There's also 1031 exchanges and other ways to just defer. Um, this is just inherent. It's our legal system and our tax system, which allows for this. It's what makes real estate so great. Um, the other thing that real estate has that is completely... Um, an advantage is it, it just asks for leverage. Banks like lending on real estate. They can understand it. It's much harder to get them to lend on other things. So when you use leverage, you end up with bigger returns because you're using your bank's money to create the returns. So I'm, I'm, I'm prefacing all this with those two things because what happens in the mind of the investor is it, it, it can't really go wrong. There's kind of this perception of, of real estate being the ultimate investment. They're not making any more of it. You know, everybody's always going to need a place to sleep. It's always going to be a good investment in the end, right? There's this perception. The challenge is, is that because of the depreciation, the acceleration of depreciation and the encouraged use of leverage, you can get behind the eight ball. And so um, for me... What I think is important is that you want to encourage your investors and your clients, my clients in my case, you want to encourage them to start thinking about the cycle that we're in and where we're at in that, in that cycle. It's probably more important in real estate than anything else. Um, because if you're highly leveraged and we reach the end of the cycle or it comes crashing down on us like it did in 2008, that can be the end of the game for everyone. Um, and so... Right now, the question I would be asking is, where are we in this cycle? Where's your perception of where we are in the real estate, you know, increasing value cycle? Um, I have, a, I have a, an idea of where I think we are, um, and, but everybody's got to answer that for themselves. So if you think we're still in the middle of the cycle and we got 10 years more to go, then go for it. You know, just keep it leveraged, you know, maximize your returns. However, if you think we're two to three years away from a potential end to this cycle, which remember has a lot to do with macroeconomics, with interest rates, um, uh, with the government's appetite to continue to bolster the economy through quantitative easing and, and, and um, huge spending packages, then if you think it's two to three years away, I would strongly be looking at my leverage. I, I would be looking at three things. I'd be looking at decreasing my leverage. I'd be looking at my analyzing my rents, 
my income to make sure I've really got it as stable as possible, that I don't have the wrong mix that's going to be highly subjective to a crash or to a correction. And I'd be protecting my assets because you can't always correct everything. And so by protecting the assets, you can at least compartmentalize. And, and, and if you have a bad problem, we can potentially cut that one off and let it, let it sink and save the rest. So that's kind of the current analysis portion of this that I think if I were, you know, advising a real estate person, I'd be asking them to think about. Dave, what are your thoughts on that? I'm curious. Yeah, I, I do want to jump into the market cycle question, but just for our listeners, Douglas, could you explain a little bit about why being leveraged and for our users, that basically means taking on debt to buy a property? Um, why leverage is a particularly risky proposition in a downturn? So, um, I mean, we can just go back to 2008 because we have a real world examples of what happened. So leverage creates carrying cost. When you borrow money, you have to pay it back. And so you have a carrying cost. Um, all real estate has a carrying cost, even without leverage, but with leverage, you, you radically increase that carrying cost. So if you borrow, let's say 90% of the value of your property, not only are your carrying costs higher, but if the value of the property decreases, you end up underwater. And that's exactly what happened in 2008. You had a lot of people that used a lot of leverage um, when, the, when the property prices crashed. And for if you weren't around in 2008, you don't remember that and you don't think it's possible, definitely it's possible. It, it definitely happens. Real estate does go down. Um, and I remember having these conversations in 2006 and 2007, particularly with my California clients. And, and it was, it was a mantra that they were saying, oh, California real estate can never go down. California real estate can never go down. It's, you know, they, they just had, they believed it. 2008, it went down. It absolutely went down. Now, if you're not leveraged, you can probably withstand that. However, if you're leveraged, what happens is if you can't, if you can't make up the cash flow discrepancy, um, then you're going to end up foreclosed on. And since there's no equity there, you're going to end up underwater, which means the bank is going to be looking for other ways to be made whole, other properties. The other thing that happens during a downturn is banks turn from your best friend to your worst enemy. They were going to help you out. You know, they're, they're on your side. They're going to do everything for you um, when everything's good. And their perception of everything being good is, is, is true. The minute it's not true, um, they're not going to work anything out with you. And I watched it happen. Clients who absolutely could have made it through 2008 had they had help from their bank um, did not make it because they didn't have help from their bank. So the more leverage you have, the 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 uh, less you have, the less ability to withstand that crisis. Um, so so if you again, if you're believing that you know we're we're maybe a two or three years away from the end of a cycle, I'd be I'd be deleveraging down maybe. 50% or 60% LTV instead of 80 or 90. So just to summarize what you're saying here, Douglas, basically having leverage, having debt against your property means that you have a fixed expense so that even if rent goes down, for example, or you have increased vacancy due to a downturn or a, uh, you know, a recession, whatever, uh, you still have to pay that back. The bank doesn't care about your business. You're paying it back one way or another. And so what you're saying is that if you put 10% or 20% down, your that cost is going to be very significant. But 
it is less risky in your opinion if you only put 50% down, for example, because you're keeping that fixed expense, the amount that you owe the bank, no matter what is going on, is just going to be less. Well, it's going to be less and you have a little headroom, right? So let's say you have 10 properties and they're all 85% leveraged. If the market goes down by 20%, all 10 properties are now underwater. You, you have no coverage. And unless you can cover the cash flow because you don't lose any rents um, or, you know, COVID doesn't uh, allow your tenants to stop paying for two years because they're in a certain county in California, then you'll be okay. But, but that can't be guaranteed. If you have an average of 60% LTV on your properties, some may be almost paid for, some a little higher, you have headroom. So if the market goes down by 20% and your cash flow is not good enough, you could sell a few properties, reduce your burn, reduce the amount of debt, because when you sell them, you pay back the bank. And if you have equity, actually inject some more cash to save the rest of your portfolio. So you're just creating, you're creating a reserve. Um, I mean, I'm a pilot. That's my, that's my hobby in my spare time. And, you know, planning a trip over water and planning to land with absolute minimum fuel is, is not safe, right? Because something can happen. You could be off course for 10 minutes and you add, the winds could be higher than you expect. All of a sudden, you're, you've got 30 more minutes of flying time and you didn't plan for it. And now you're down in the water. So it's like leverage. How much fuel do you have in your tank? How much reserve did you plan? So, you know, my philosophy is I like leverage. I like the increased returns it gives you as a real estate investor. Um, when I feel really good about where things are going, I'm, I feel more comfortable to use more leverage. When I feel like I'm not 100% sure where things are going, I'm going to deleverage a little bit. But it's just how much reserve do I want to have? Um, I've got, I've got one client in particular, he uses no leverage. He, he just uses zero. He just doesn't want. And now is he giving up a lot of opportunity because he didn't use leverage and he could only use his cash. And that means he can only do so many deals. Of course he is. Um, it does. He sleep every night like a baby, no matter what happens. Of course he does, you know, and that's just him. Um, so, so you have to find for yourself where that spot is, but I think the danger is for, for younger people, uh, and newer investors that haven't seen the cycles, there's a little bit of a, a, a tendency to have a perception that it, we, there's no, there's no downside to this. It can't go, it can't go down. Um, and we know that it can, it, you know, so, so I think, um, being a little more conservative than maybe you are uh, inclined to be, especially if you're young, is going to serve you if we do have a downturn. I think that's really interesting. And for everyone listening to this, it, it sounds like there's really a spectrum of how much leverage you should use. Because I can imagine that if you found a killer deal where you had a lot of cash flow, so that even if rents went down 10 or 20%, even at, you know, uh, 80% leverage, you might still be okay. And so I think it's, it's up to you to sort of assess your risk on every single deal. If you're in a area that, you know, doesn't have a strong economic engine and might be particularly hard during recession, then that's a lot greater risk. If you're in a place where employment is typically strong, even during recession, that's less risk. So you have to think about each of these for yourself and assess how you want to use your strategy. Douglas, I want to ask you about one of my strategies and something I've thought a lot about, um, which is that 
in a historical context, interest rates are close to as low as they've ever been, even mm -hmm. as they are rising and their media is, you know, saying it's going up and it really is going up pretty quickly, much faster than yeah. I was expecting. Yeah. But, you know, the average rate on a 30 year fixed right now is still around four, low fours, which prior to the Great Recession, in the history of data I've seen, it was never below five. So we're still really low. Uh, mm -hmm. One of the things as an investor I want to do is take advantage of that leverage and to lock in those low interest rates. So how do you square the opportunity of having super low interest rates with the need to mitigate risk? Yeah. And, and you said it, Dave, I mean, you, you, you really said it. Every deal needs to stand on its own. It's not, um, I don't think this lends itself to just a blanket rule of, I only do 50% leverage no matter what. I don't think that would serve you and be accurate enough for every deal. Some deals are just home runs and you can feel more comfortable. Um, some deals are a little bit tighter and you probably want to be a little more conservative. Um, Interest rates are low. They are still low. And if you can lock in bank rate level low, like you're talking about, a 30-year fixed under 4%, um, there's very little reason not to do it. The question is, you know, do you, do you continue to do it at the absolute max leverage all the way across the board just because interest rates are low and therefore I'm just going to take advantage of it? If you're going to do that and you say, look, I'm going to borrow as much as I possibly can because the rates are so low, then what I would do is I would hedge on the other side by keeping some cash so mm -hmm. that you could pay down or you could handle a little bit of fluctuation. Just because you're going to use 90% leverage because you can get it and the rate is fantastic doesn't mean you have to be cash poor all the time. This is another challenge with real estate investors that, that is, is unique to them. They're almost always cash poor because they're constantly putting every piece of cash they have into the next deal. And so... If you're going to continue to keep high leverage because the, you want to lock in rates, that's totally fine. Just offset with more cash, which means you might have to pass on the next deal. You know, don't do it. Hold it. Reserve it. Um, and, and it's hard for real estate people to do this. I swear. I know them really well. They, they just, it, oh, no, no. I, I mean, it's in the bank. It's not earning anything. I just can't do it. But sometimes you have to, you have to make that that choice. So that's the way I would do it, Dave. I'd lock it in and get as much as you can, but just reserve, reserve the cash. Don't, don't spend every penny on the next deal. I think that's great advice. And typically what I think about is trying to have that cash across my entire portfolio. So even if I don't mm -hmm. hold it in cash, I look at the cash flow that I have from maybe some deals that I've held for a long time that are now producing mm -hmm. really good cash. And that to me provides a cushion for future deals. And I, I personally, um, you know, don't put less than 25% down on most deals, but, um, I, I think people can start looking at it sort of as a holistic basis. It's not just any individual deal, but look at the liquidity you have across your portfolio and across all of your assets to make right. sure that if something goes wrong, you have protection. That's just basic, you know, advice from in, in any market condition. In my opinion, you should always have some cash reserves to, to weather a, a storm. Yeah. And, 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 and if you feel like you're at the end of the cycle a little bit more, right. You know, well, that's part of what's tricky about right now, because I always use the example of if you just let economies operate how they naturally should, you go with the whole Adam Smith, the invisible hand, 
you can kind of tell what is natural. Like we've had a big run. We're due for a recession. Everything's going to sort of slow down. The bad businesses will die. Better businesses will start. We'll have another run. It's very similar to what I like the sleep cycle of a human being. You are not productive 24 hours a day. You actually have to stop and sleep and let everything rebuild. And during that time, you're not productive. It's like a recession. But what we figured out how to do in our country is inject drugs into us every time we get tired. So when we should be sleeping, we go shoot up with a bunch of drugs and we work all night. And it's like, wow, look how productive I am. I'm being so productive as if there's not going to be any downside to that. And when we're having these discussions, what we're trying to do is figure out, is the market going to keep going up or is it going to go down? Well, if everything was left alone, you would know it's 10, 30, 11 o'clock. This person's about to go to sleep. They fall mm-hmm. asleep every night at around that time. We can predict what's going to happen so we can make smart decisions with our money. But when someone's on drugs, you don't know what they're going to do <laughs> sometimes. And like that's part of what they're doing by raising interest rates is it's a form of injecting downers to slow things down. We're going too fast. Now we're trying to you yeah. know, put an opiate in, into someone so, because they've been going hard for too long. So what it causes is this problem of all of us trying to figure out, is this person going to stay up all night working or are they going to crash and go to sleep? Because so, I don't know what to do with my money if I don't know what they're going to do. What I like about your advice, Doug, is, well, you have to hedge, but there's different ways to hedge. Some people hedge by saying, I'm going to stop buying. I'm going to wait for the market to crash, and then I'm going to get in. Those people have kind of been getting kicked in the teeth because that hasn't happened. Then there's people like me that say, yeah, I have to keep buying because I think we're going to keep printing money, and I think that we're going to keep creating stimulus, and that's going to cause assets to go up in value and inflation to happen, but I don't know that for sure. Mm -hmm. So while I'm going to be very aggressive with what I'm investing in, I'm also going to be very conservative with what I spend my money on. I'm an advocate of telling people now is not the time to quit your job. This is not the time to go all in in real estate investing, buy a couple duplexes and say, I'm going to go live on the beach. That made more sense when we had a stable asset class that we understood what was going to happen. You could sort of quit your job and go do something and live off the rent because you you basically understood at what time someone's going to fall asleep and what time they're going to wake up. With all this uncertainty, you kind of have to play the game more aggressively because everyone else wants these assets. There's a lot of demand for them. You got to pay more than what you would want to pay. And it's not going to be on what your ideal terms would be. And so to balance that, I have to keep working. I have to keep saving money and I have to keep more money in reserves. Really, I got to be aggressive on saving money and I got to be aggressive on buying property. That's the way that I'm playing the game with the uncertainty. And I really like that you highlighted there's different ways to be conservative. You can keep buying property. You could just put more money down on it if that's one way and and borrow less. Or you could be like David Green, borrow more, but put more money in reserves because Mm -hmm. I prefer to keep my money in the bank. I can't control if the economy drops. If I have 50 percent equity in a property and then the market tanks and it drops down to 10% equity, there's nothing I could do to stop the equity from dropping, but they can't take the money that I have set aside in the bank. So I can make my debt service payments for a very long time, even if I do lose equity. But it's sort of a principle that you're advocating for with your asset protection is, yeah, don't, don't not buy assets because you're afraid of what could happen. Aggressively buy them, but aggressively protect them. Right. Take more. And when I say aggressive, I just mean be more purposeful about what you're doing so that as your um, exposure grows and your risk grows, your protection sort of grows in proportion. Is that more or less the principle you're applying here? Yeah. And you just you just really brought up the point that I think is the most important, which is if you're acting out of fear, you can be pretty sure you're not doing the right thing. So if you're, if you're just afraid of a a market crash and you quit buying because of fear, 
you might be appearing to do the right thing, but if it's motivated by fear, it's probably going to backfire on you. It's much better to be, to be creating a situation where you're doing it consciously and you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm scaling back. I'm going to do this. In your case, if you're keeping more cash, well, how do I protect that cash? How do I make sure that is not at risk from the banks? Let's say one of my properties does go underwater. That's where asset protection comes in. You're creating a safe space to keep the cash as well as all the real estate. Um, so it's just being intentional. And what I've learned is that asset protection lowers fear. And when it lowers fear, it allows people to make better decisions. Um, they've done studies. People in, 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 in fight or flight are literally stupider. They, they literally test lower on an IQ test because you, you, you bypass the, the thinking part of your brain. You just don't make good analytical decisions when you're acting from fear. So you want to use your tools to allow you to make good decisions. I'm, I'm a huge fan of is if you can do it consciously, if you understand the impact of, of it not working out and you're willing to handle it, you should do it, you know, and that, and for some of my clients, Oh my God. I mean, I, I have some hyper aggressive people and it's pretty awesome to watch because I mean, when they hit it out of the park, they hit it out of the park. Um, when they crash and burn, they crash and burn, but they can handle it. They're conscious about it. it understanding yourself and where you fall on that risk scale is very important because as long as you you're good with it and your spouse, I mean, you know, you got to have buy-in there. Otherwise that's a recipe for divorce. Um, as long as you've got that handle on it, I think that you're, you're fine. The challenge is for just like, you know, young scorpions don't know how much venom they release. And so they're much more dangerous to be bit by a young or stung by a young scorpion than an old one. Cause you're going to get all the venom and, and it's going to be bad. Same with young investors. Um, they, they don't yet know, and they're more aggressive than they will be in the future. Um, and that can get them in trouble. So I'm always, when I talk to younger people, I'm always encouraging them to listen to the, the wisdom in the room, which I, I think probably is why they're listening to this podcast and to you guys, because that's your perspective, right? You're bringing that, you're bringing that, that, that dose of wisdom to them so that they don't make and repeat the, the mistakes that we all made. I was doing an interview the other day for someone on, I think, Bloomberg News, and they were asking me about the Burr method. And they said, well, isn't that really risky because you're going to keep getting your money and keep putting it into more real estate and you keep growing your exposure? And I said, no, it's actually a fail safe. If you buy one bad deal, you can't get your money out of it. And it stops you from buying the next property until you learn how to not buy bad deals. Yeah. You, you, can, you can't keep going if you're using the Burr method, if you're, if you're relying on that initial seed money to get it back out and put it in the next deal yeah. and you buy wrong or you don't manage the construction well, just your skills are not where they need to be. It automatically slows you down. You can only yeah. scale faster as you get better. And it made me think real estate in general is kind of like that. You've got a bank that's looking at your ability to repay debt and the assets you have that has to approve it before they're going to give you a loan. Right. Unless right. you go borrow money from someone else, but most people are not giving their money to a brand new person. It tends to build wealth. I mean, outside the last three, four years or so relatively slowly and boring, right? It's a lot of work. It's not like stocks where you just click a button and bam, you've, you've made your trade. It takes a lot of elbow grease to get this thing up and running. And so while it is risky, I feel like real estate has natural boundaries that make it harder to just explode out there and make a lot of moves. 
like a lot of the young people you're talking about, they've only seen the market do well. What scares me is the people that are making money in crypto trading, in Forex trading, in NFT trading, in even stocks to a degree day trading, because there are no barriers that stop you from losing everything. It's clicking buttons on a computer. You can put all your money into it. There's nobody that has to oversee what you're doing. You don't have to collect bank statements and and have someone overview your financials and show that you've had steady income for two years. There, none of that happens. And so when that money comes so quick, Doug, you made such a good point. It's easy to think it's always going to be coming that quick. So while this is inherent in all of investing and it does happen in real estate investing, it happens less, I think, in real estate investing than in other asset classes because of the headaches <laughs> that's involved in buying real estate. I mean, those of us that do it all the time will still tell you it gets easier, but it never gets easy. There's always a lot of hurdles you got to jump through. And maybe that's one of the lessons from today's show is that the more hurdles that there are between the person trying to take what you have and what you have, the safer you are. And the more hurdles that there are between you taking risk and growing wealth and where you are right now, the safer that you are. Any last words on that thought? Yeah, I think, I think it's a great point. And you're right. Um, the bank is your partner in this real estate. And when the banks lose their objectivity, like they did in 2008 and they start going off the walls, well, they brought everybody down with them. I mean, that was very bank induced. You know, it was, it was, um, the, the banks are not like that today for good. I mean, that's good. That's good for everybody. It's hard to get a real estate loan. They still need to document it. It's, it's, it's a much different process. And that's good because if, if they do give you the money, it's a vote of confidence in the deal that you're doing. Um, and, and again, they'll tell you, Hey, yeah, we'll give you money, but we're going to need 40% down on this deal. So they're, 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 they're perceiving that risk and helping you. Um, and yeah, the more hurdles, um, hurdles are good. You, you can use them to your advantage. And when it comes to asset protection, you want to use them to your advantage. You want to put the hurdles in front of that potential creditor and your assets. Yeah. And that's what I tell people to watch out for. When people say, are we going for a crash? Man, the fundamentals are strong. Banks yeah. are still looking at debt to income ratios. They still only let you buy cash flowing properties. But I do see a scenario. I'm just going to put on my little Nostradamus hat right now mm -hmm. where institutional investors, Wall Street money, hedge funds, pe people with big, big capital come together and say, you know what? The average person doesn't want to go through the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac process of having to go through a colonoscopy to get a loan. Why don't we provide them with some options where we can do lending backed by real estate that's a lot easier? And now you have people that don't have as much experience with valuing the risk involved in this, making the process easy for people that haven't done it before. And we could see another slide into that uh, environment that you just described, Doug, uh, but just a different tunnel, right? Well, the first uh, one. Uh, well, and, and, and add to that DeFi and the fact that we, I've already got clients calling me saying they want to turn their real estate into an NFT and then, and then sell it out. So this is coming. It is real. Yeah. And it, it can absolutely spur a whole nother, you know, irrational exuberance around you know, uh, access to, to capital through DeFi. So we've got an interesting time ahead of us in the next five, 10 years. Wonderful point. Thank you for pointing that out. That really sums up. I think it's based on fundamentals right now. So I'm still buying and I still think it's yep. going to go up, but I am not oblivious to the fact that what you just described could change everything to the point that I can no longer anticipate what is reasonably going to happen. And that's when I get scared. I'm like, ah, there's just so many options. I can't see how things are going to work out. Um, at that point, I would definitely rein in or, or at least put a lot more money in reserves to play the long game. Dave, any last words on your behalf? No, this has been a great conversation. I've personally learned a lot, Douglas. Thank you. 
Yeah, my pleasure, guys. You guys are uh, uh, definitely on the cutting edge, and, and this is a great conversation. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, thank you, Doug. And that was our show with Doug Lodmel. Dave, what'd you think? I thought that was super helpful. I, you know, we always talk about the opportunity of real estate investing. And obviously we both believe in that. Otherwise we wouldn't be here, but I really think it's important for people, especially as you grow your portfolio, you have more assets to really think about long-term security. And like you said, how to keep what you have. And I think Doug provided some really common sense ways, easy ways to do it, um, to protect yourself and make sure that your assets are shielded from any sorts of lawsuits. Um, and I also really enjoyed just the conversation about leverage, uh, because I think, you know, a lot of people assume you want to put as little money down as possible. And for some people that might be the right strategy, but thinking about it as a continuum of leverage has great opportunity, but it also does carry risk and just having to find the right sweet spot for your own risk tolerance, your own strategy and how to apply leverage. That was a great point. What it got my wheels turning about was this idea of risk in general. So it is risky to invest in real estate, and many people will tell you that, but it is also risky to not invest in real estate, and fewer people will tell you that. And as inflation continues to rip through our money supply, it becomes more and more risky to not invest in real estate. But the squeeze happens where, because more and more people are seeing the risk of not investing, and they're starting to invest, is that going to create a bubble that now makes it riskier to invest, right? So this whole risk thing, you just can't get away from it. In any direction you go, there's always risk. And I started thinking about uh, the other day at Jiu-Jitsu, I got partnered up with a guy. It was his very, very first day ever rolling. So I had a bad feeling when like three seconds before we started, he goes, so what are we doing here? Are we just like trying to submit each other? And I was like, oh boy, like, yeah, <laughs> let's don't poke each other in the eye. Don't kick each other in the head. Right. And, uh, I thought he's like, this is his first dime. He's going to start off slow. So I kind of like gently went forward to grab him and he just torpedoed me right in the chest. And I fell straight backwards at a very odd angle. Like my left leg folded up underneath me and I twisted my ankle. Thank goodness. I didn't hurt my knee. Cause I could have, but I ended up getting injured. And so after class, I was thinking about how that was extra risky because he didn't know what he was doing. And then I found out later he was a really good wrestler in either high school or college. So he wasn't playing it safe. Like I was expecting him to, he went the opposite way and he went like completely hundred uh, percent. And I started thinking about how like, well, there's some risk in doing this. You could get hurt. But then I started thinking about, well, there's risk in not doing it because you don't get exercise. And if you do get in a fight somewhere, you can't take care of yourself. You could get hurt even more. So there's risk in both sides. You can get hurt if you go to the gym and lift weights, but you can also have bad health consequences if you don't exercise, if you don't go to the gym and lift weights. And so I've sort of come to this conclusion that no matter what you do, there is risk that you cannot win by avoiding risk, that the way you win is by having a plan for risk, right? I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to lift weights, but I'm going to start off really slow and I'm not going to go heavy and I'm going to have a spotter, right? Like the odds of you getting hurt become much less. And now you've also mitigated the risk of just not putting on muscle mass. So you have a slower metabolism or whatever you're going through in life. It's just something that, yes, if you get married, there's a risk. You could get divorced. You could lose some of your assets, but if you don't get married, what's the risk in doing that, right? You may end up never having a family and having regret at the end of your life. So I just want to encourage everybody who hears these things and feels fear 
that what Doug's preaching, what we're preaching here is that fear is never going to go away. There's fear in doing something. There's fear in not doing something. The key to overcoming it is to have a plan for if something goes wrong, what you'll do. So any last words on that thought, Dave? No, I think that's exactly right. I really liked when Doug was talking about being deliberate. And I think that's a really important thing in today's market. You and I have talked a lot about what we think is going to happen to the housing market. Personally, um, I think we're at least at the end of the year, we're going to be seeing prices go up. But I continue to invest knowing and understanding and being comfortable with the fact that it could go down. Like, I think there's more risk in the market now than there was, has been in like a decade, right? Um, That said, I'm still investing because like you said, you, you can't get the reward without taking a risk. You can't, you know, if you want no risk, put your money in a savings account, but you're not going to get the benefit. You have to understand that If you're an investor for 10 or 20 or 30 years, you're going to see the market go down at some point. So just prepare yourself both legally, like Douglas was saying, but also mentally. Just, you know, be prepared that there are going to be days when things are tough and when it looks like you've lost a lot of money. But if you prepare and you have liquidity and you protect yourself, you're going to survive it and you're going to be okay. And I think that's just a a mental thing you need to get over if you're going to be an investor. That is a great point. All right. Well, thank you, Dave. As usual, it was a pleasure bringing value to the bigger pockets masses and doing this podcast with you. I appreciate you as always. Oh, this was fun. I, I always like doing this show and uh, yeah, looking forward to it next month. All right. Well, if you like today's show, please go to the comment section. Let us know what you thought, what your favorite part was, what you wanted us to dive deeper into and what questions remain unresolved. Also, please like, share and subscribe to us on YouTube where you can actually watch our faces and our hands and the various gestures that we make. Yeah, look at that. That's a really good expression. Also, wait, I also have to say before we go. Stay tuned for the premiere of On the Market, our newest podcast that's going to be focused on news and data and trends. April 11th, it's coming out. There you go. Bigger Pockets bringing more and more value. You really don't need anything else to listen to at all between podcasts and YouTube. We can take up 100% of your education space. <laughs> and I hope we do. This is David Green for Dave No Risk, No Reward Meyer, signing off. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam! Instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. 
BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.